Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Amen. Before I get started here, you know, the Bible says to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. And it occurs to me that uh, this week our piano player got engaged to that guitar player right there. And so we want to rejoice with the McDonald and vocal dance players. There you go, Jameson. Yes. All right. And a lot of times he's up there. And I, did you notice also, I mean, half of our musicians uh, were under the age of 25. And so praise the Lord for that. And uh, all the, yeah, praise the Lord. And um, also that's true with our sound and media people and all the different things. So it's uh, really neat to see uh, young folks serving the Lord too. Uh, but it also, the Bible also says to mourn with those who mourn. And I, I can't let this week go by. Sometimes we have uh, one of our precious members pass away on a Monday and the funeral's done before the weekend. And so I try to remember on Sunday to tell you. And this week, Becky Hale went to be with Jesus. And it was a blessing. She'd had Alzheimer's for over, over five years. Donnie Haymore, I see here today, he did the service and did a great job of it. And, uh, but, you know, um, last Sunday night we celebrated Dorothy Carter and all that she did as a children's worker. And Becky hasn't been able physically to come to church for probably a decade or more. Uh, but Becky and Bud Hale, my goodness, never forget church. Becky and Bud Hale, she taught years of Sunday school. And every Sunday morning when there was a greeting time, Becky and Bud would go all over the building talking to people and things like that. And he helped us in lots of different ways, taught Bible school, all the different things they did over the years. So remember Becky Hale as well. Well, let's just take a moment uh, to see who's here this morning. If you are under the age of 20, if you're 25 or under, will you please stand? So look at all those that are 25 or under. I saw some people try to lie there. Thankful, <laughs> thankful for all of them. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Uh, how about if you're 26 to 50, you go ahead and stand. 26 to 50. Good. Yeah. Amen. All over the building, good number of people. Super. All right. How about uh, 51 to 75? That's me too. I'm standing. All right. Very good. And if you're 76 and up, will you please stand if you can? All right. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3. And as you turn there, um, I want to tell you about a 19th century circuit-riding preacher named Peter Cartwright. My goodness, he was one of those powerful frontier-type evangelists. And he was preparing to deliver a, a sermon one Sunday in the 1820s uh, when he was warned that President Andrew Jackson, old hickory, was in attendance. In light of that, he was asked to keep his remarks inoffensive. Wrong thing to say to Peter Cartwright. During the message, he included this statement. I have been told that Andrew Jackson is in this congregation, and I've been asked to guard my remarks. What I must say is that Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent of his sin. In a while, we'll hear how President Jackson responded to that. But I wonder, our text is going to talk about open doors today. And I wonder, is there really such a thing as open doors in life? It's a saying we hear a lot. You know, God, when he closes a door, he opens a window. And we talk about open and closed doors and those things. And yes, today's passage talks about open doors before the redeemed. And here's what I mean by open doors. By open doors, I mean divine opportunities that can be lost to us or become a closed door if we don't act on them in time. And I think there are. There are such things as open doors. But the question is also then, if there are such a thing as open doors that God providentially and sovereignly opens... Uh, what will we gain by acting while the door is open before us? And what will be lost if we fail to act and that door closes? 
want you to think of those things while we look at Revelation chapter 3. So for those just joining us, I'm preaching through the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament and the entire Bible. And in many ways, that also makes it the last book of the Old Testament because the Old Testament talks about all the prophecies that were fulfilled when Christ came the first time, but also it made many more that will be fulfilled in the days and years and and time to come, right? So we talk about the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ and all the promises not yet fulfilled to Israel and the world will be fulfilled uh, before it's all said and done. And when we get to the book of Revelation, it's divided into three parts. The chapter one vision that John the apostle saw of his beloved Jesus and Jesus talking to him and giving a great portrait of who Jesus is. And then that's the past, but in the present is what he says to the churches. There were seven specific churches in Asia Minor that got a letter in this part of Revelation. But even there, the Holy Spirit says, listen to what the Spirit says to the church is. And so it includes the churches of all time, including today. There's a message for us today and to all Christians. And then in chapter 4 and beyond, we get into what's going to happen in the future. First chapters 4 and 5 give a look into heaven, what's happening after what we would call the rapture of the church. And then chapter 6 starts with the time of trouble, that seven-year dark period coming uh, in the future before Christ returns to earth and sets up a physical kingdom to go along with the one that is already spiritual in the lives of those who embrace him now. So, We're in the sixth of seven letters, and there's so much here. Let's uh, go ahead and read verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, you've kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. If Revelation 1 Verse 19 outlines the book of Revelation for us, talking about the things which have been, which are, and will be. This is a super key verse in the book of Revelation, Revelation 3.10, because it is given as a promise here, and in the immediate couple chapters to come, he's going to talk about that hour of testing, that hour of trial, the time of tribulation. Looking in verse 10, because you've kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown." He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The open doors before the redeemed. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the book of Revelation. Thank you for the time of praise that we've had. Thank you for how you bring us together to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. We pray you'd continue to be with Jeff and Randy Hale and their family now as they grieve the homegoing of Becky, Lord. We thank you that she's with you now. We rejoice also with Jameson and Anna, Lord, and their engagement, Lord, and we pray you'd bless them as they move toward their big day. Lord, as we come together now and sit under your word, we're mindful that what you do, Holy Spirit, is you take God's word and in a corporate setting like this, you use it not only to uh, continue what you're doing in individual lives, but to form this body together, to think God's thoughts together, to apply God's word together. And so we pray that that definitely will happen here in the days to come. In your name we pray, amen. Well, for each of these letters, I've told you some of the things about the city that they dwell in. And so for any city around the world that's got churches, those churches tend to have something they're doing, some ministry they have because of where they're at. So if you were a church in Amsterdam, you would have to deal with the red light district, right? And some people have come out of that 
those sins of prostitution and things and you're helping people get uh, straightened out in those things. If you had a, um, the same thing would be true if you had a church anywhere in Thailand where uh, they have such uh, crazy uh, licentious laws, you know, that allow almost anything to go. And so as people got saved out of those backgrounds, you'd be helping them and discipling them. Well, here's what we know about Philadelphia. The city was about 25 or 30 miles southeast of Sardis, considered the gateway to Upper Asia. It was named after Pergamenian King Attalus III, named Philadelphor, because he loved his brother. So they called him, he's the Philadelphor. That guy really loves his brother. A lot of grape growing happened there, and they worshiped Dionysius, the god of wine. So they probably had some alcoholics to deal with. Because it was liable to earthquake, many of its citizens lived outside the city. They simply weren't going to live in buildings again after the big one that they'd had in AD 17. And they still uh, sometimes would have tremors for decades later because of that. Emperor Tiberius had used Roman money to rebuild it, and in gratitude it was renamed Neo Caesarea, New Caesar. As the gateway to Upper Asia, the city was responsible for spreading Greek culture to Upper Asia. If you've ever been to uh, you know, Jackson, Wyoming, you know you're you know, there, the Yellowstone Park and things, so you can go there, and they like to talk about all you can experience in the park. Well, in Philadelphia, they like to think of themselves as spreading their culture, Greek culture, to all those ones that were beyond them in Upper Asia. They took it on as a mission, and so there were people that were there trying to get the cultural things to others. Now, so far in these letters to the churches, we've seen Jesus as, each of these letters starts with Jesus telling him a little bit more, telling us a little bit more about himself. And we've seen him presented as the one who's present with his churches and who holds their pastors in his hand. We've seen him as the one who rose from the dead and the one who will raise all who have faith in Christ from the dead one day. We've seen him as the ultimate judge, the one who is all-knowing and all-powerful the one who gives the energizing Holy Spirit to those who believe. And now we see added to that that Jesus is, verse 7, the holy and true God who opens and closes doors. These things says he who has, uh, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. So it tells us three more things about Jesus. First, we're told that Jesus is he who is holy. The word holy makes us think about being set apart. A holy person is one who's been set apart for God's purposes. When applied to Jesus, it means that he is sinless. He never sinned. He's completely other than the sinfulness we see in ourselves and others around us. We act very selfishly very often. Jesus never did that. He always acted for the glory of his heavenly father and for his own glory as God who dwelt among us and for the... uh, the, the, just the, the ability for the world to be saved through what he would do. When we're called to be holy, we're called to be otherworldly like Jesus. So a holy person reflects heaven's values even when they're on earth. I love how 2 Corinthians 5 says it, that we're called to be ambassadors for Christ. We're appealing to the world. We're, we're salt and light in the world. We're appealing to the world to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And so we're set apart as heaven's ambassadors to the places we live and go. Christ is holy. He calls us to be holy. There's a lack of holiness all around us. But Jesus is the holy one who will never act against his perfect character. Many times Christians don't do the things that are consistent with the position the high position they have in Christ. But our Savior, the one we worship, never acts against who he is intrinsically as a beautiful, as the beautiful one that we just sang about. It also tells us here that he's true. He's holy and he's true. Every person on earth deep down inside craves to know the way they should go, the truth they should live by, the life they should have. And Jesus reminds us here that he's true. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus is the holy one. He's the true one. But we also see that this holy and true one opens and closes doors. Look what verse 7 says again. It tells us that Jesus has the keys of David. Now, I told you already in this series that... um, There are hundreds of references to Old Testament scriptures in the book of Revelation. It really does bring together all that's been hanging out there from the days of the Old Testament to the New. And 
when Jesus talks about having the keys of David, he's making a reference to Isaiah chapter 22. And the passage is verses 15 through 24. You can look at that later. But Isaiah 22, 22 is repeated in Revelation 3, 7. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens is a quotation from Isaiah 22, 22. Now here's what was happening back in Isaiah 22. The key to David's treasures when he was king there was a place that they had all the treasure, you know, the, the, the vault of the bank, the place where all the good stuff was. There was a place in the temple that had all the great treasures. And in Isaiah 22, they came to know that they'd had a very bad steward, a very bad manager of those things, and he was replaced. Shebna was a bad steward who was not doing what he should with the king's treasures and management of them. And the key was taken from him and given to a man named Eliakim, who was a good steward. And when that transfer happened from Shebna the bad steward to Eliakim the good one, the authority now was now Eliakim's to open and close that door, to use the treasures for a good purposes, holy purposes, true purposes, rather than sinful purposes. Woo! You see where that's going, don't you? So here's what the Bible teaches about the sinfulness of man. Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, and then they had children, and their sin nature was passed along to Cain and Abel, and all the generations, Seth then was their third child, all the ones down through the ages. So we're born with a sin nature, and we know that in the Garden of Eden, Satan tempted Adam and Eve. That had them fall. So in a very real sense, Adam and Eve sold the family farm there in the Garden of Eden. And Satan took up, wrongfully, but took up the keys to the human race and held them under bondage all the way until Jesus Christ dealt with it decisively when he lived on earth, died for our sins on the cross, and rose from the dead. Satan, a horrible steward of the earth and its resources. And so the keys were transferred from the bad steward to the good steward. When Jesus earned victory on the cross, he got the keys back. He returned to heaven. Now, had Israel turned to him in mass when he was on earth, the second coming things might have happened right then, but instead, God gave a great parenthesis in time that we live in now before all that stuff gets brought back into the picture, and the book of Revelation talks about that in the chapters to come. So, the... the the world right now, it's almost like living in, um, well, I think uh, this analogy would help. Some of you own properties. Some of you own properties. And every once in a while, you have to deal with somebody who's living in your property who's trashing the place, right? And they don't own the property, but they're acting like they do and they're trashing the place. They're bad stewards of what's there before, but they don't own it. Satan doesn't own this world. He's just trashing this world. And he's using people to trash this world. When Christ returns, Revelation chapter 20, he's going to take the keys that are his, the authority that is his, and he's going to do what some of you property owners have had to do. You've had to work through the law to set out a bad tenant, right? So when he returns, Satan's going to finally get what's coming to him, and the earth's going to get the makeover it needs, right? Acts 3, it's called the restoration of all things that is to come. What beautiful optimism the scripture has that individual sinners don't have to go to hell, they can go to heaven instead, and this planet will one day have an extreme makeover and that God will restore all the holy and true and wonderful things. And so it's the same thing that Jesus said at his great commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And then he said, Go, therefore, my disciples, and make disciples. So while Jesus is in heaven, he's left us the power of attorney, so to speak, to represent him, to be his ambassadors while he's gone. And so we're quickly going to go from the concept that he's the one with the keys, that he's the one that opens and closes doors, to the fact that he has set open doors before us that he expects us to walk through. Now, when you and I go through the doors that God has opened for us, we're finally able to say with fullness in our hearts, this is why I was made. I finally get it. I finally see God's purpose and plan. This is why I was made. Now, each open door is usually a limited time offer. So we've got to recognize the open doors and walk through them before they close because it says here he also closes doors. Now, listen to me. We talk, many of us talk a lot about things we will do one day. One day I'll do this. One day I'll that, do that. But when God calls you to do something and open the doors for you to do it, and you say, not now, 
most of those doors are closed by the time you feel ready. If you are a one-day-I-will kind of Christian, then you'll be a Christian that misses a lot of blessings along the way, ways God could have used you. And, and don't get me wrong, I think we all have those. I mean, we're, we're kind of dull, you know? Uh, sometimes we recognize, oh, I really was supposed to do that, and I resisted the Holy Spirit. And even though God's working in the present and into my future, I wish I had walked through that open door when it was open. And so some people have proposed that one day in heaven, part of the introduction time there will be uh, uh, the blessings that we achieve by walking through those open doors before us and what God can reward. And then there will be a closed door there and you'll, we'll say, hey, well, what's behind that door? And it said, I can't show you that. That's, that's what you would have been blessed with if you'd obeyed perfectly all the time, if you'd walked through those open doors. Now, there are people here who are probably called to the ministry and you ought to be going for more training at college or seminary. But you're saying, no, I'm not going to do that. But if the Holy Spirit's calling you to do that, you need to say yes. Others should be contacting a mission board, but you say, one day maybe, and one day may never come. He's the one who opens doors. He's wholly true. He opens and closes doors. He's got the keys. He's got the authority. Well, verse 8, we turn transition into the open doors that he sets before the redeemed. So verse 8, he says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. The letter to Philadelphia is only the second letter where there's no condemnation at all. We saw this with the church at Smyrna. Now we see it with the church at Philadelphia. In each of these letters... There was commendation for what he could commend about them, and there was condemnation for things he had to condemn. And this is one of only two that he says, I've got nothing bad to say about you, Church of Philadelphia. Wow, what a church! Now, I think if we could hear Jesus talking, you know, sometimes when you're reading the Scripture, you need to drop back and say, let me think a little bit about what the tone Jesus might have had as he said this is was, you know. Like when the man said... Uh, good teacher. And Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one's good, but God alone. Right? So if you're calling me a good teacher, you must be stating that I'm God. I, I wish we could get some of that body language and tone. And maybe one day we'll get to see what that looked like. But I think if we had that here with Revelation 3.8, Jesus would kind of have a little bit of chuckle in verse 8 when he says they have limited strength. Something like, ha, ha, you aren't much in your own strength, church, but you keep my word and honor my name. It's almost like Jesus is saying, despite the fact that you aren't much in and of yourselves, because you love me and do what I, it says in the Bible, you are the kind of people I can use. I think there's a warmth here as Jesus says this that uh, was very powerful. He says, you've kept the emphasis in the right place. You ain't much, but God is much. And when you allow him to work through you, then we see the kind of things that he was commending the church in Philadelphia for. And some of you are like that. Um, sometimes I think I'm like the guy in Winston Churchill's joke. I think it was about the lady that grew up in Danville. Uh, and he was talking about her husband or something. And Winston Churchill said, yes, yes, that man is a humble man with much to be humble about. And sometimes I feel like that for myself. You know, I'm a humble man with much to be humble about, you know, because uh, uh, there are so many servants of God that uh, have achieved so much more for the Lord. Um, some of you feel like that, and God uses you greatly, and you don't even realize it. And perhaps it's a good thing you don't realize it, because it's not about you, is it? And it's not about me, is it? It's about what God wants to do in and through us as individuals and as a church family together. And as with others that of any denomination that calls on the name of the Lord and honors the word and wants to get the message to the ends of the earth. He says to them, because of that, I have set an open door before you that no one can close. Now, we have already seen that the city was there to spread Greek culture to upper Asia. Some church members were probably involved in that somehow. And the open door for that church was to use those same avenues to spread the gospel. Oh my goodness, it's such a blessing to be living here in the United States of America. And we do have some privileges as citizens of the United States of America that allow us to go rather freely around the world and allow us to go to places that some people in more closed countries simply don't have. And God has given that to you as part of your package. And I think we have some people born in other countries here today too. And it's all part of the mix of things that God wants to do in and through us as he takes us and 
brings the good news about Jesus to the places we live and the places near us and those who are different than us. And when you become a serious Christian, you can't help but read the newspapers differently that way. You say, yes, there's a political thing to deal with related to immigration, but oh my goodness, there's so many more people here from other countries around us. What, is, what are me and my churches and my state convention doing to help reach those people? And thankfully, here in the state of Virginia, we have lots of our state leaders thinking that way, and so we have 30 or 40 different Hispanic church plants around the state because of people having an open-door mindset, seeing doors open before them. Uh, we have enough that they can have a meeting to support each other even before they come to our annual meeting. Then many of them are well represented there as well. We have church plants among Ethiopians in the Washington, D.C. area and Persians in the D.C. area. And there's an Arabic-speaking church in Richmond and in D.C. as we see to look where God's at work and join him in what he's doing, seeing the opportunities he gives. And it is so much more gratifying to think of things from a kingdom of God perspective and advancing Christ's spiritual kingdom on earth than to always be worried about every single little political thing and big political things too. I'm not saying they're not important. They just need to be kept in their place for Christians that also see opportunities and God, doors that God is opening. Well, seven indicators that God is opening a door for you, and I've really given this to you as your lunchtime discussion. So you remember about 10% of what you hear. It goes up to over 50% if you're looking into a Bible that you own and see it and you're, you're making notes. It goes up to 75% or so when you're taking the notes. And then when you talk about it later and find ways to apply it, it's well over 90%. And uh, so that's why sometimes I say, this is your homework. Well, your homework is to think about these things around the lunch table. Seven indicators that God the Holy Spirit is opening a door for you. First of all, there's a real opportunity to spread the gospel. It's opening up a way for somebody maybe to meet Christ that may not have been there before. Also, circumstances begin lining up to reinforce the opportunity. Um, you feel the Holy Spirit pounding on your heart about it, not letting it go. You continuously feel his, like you're, you're not in God's best for your life. You may be in a good for your life, but you're not in God's best for your life. Your Bible reading and prayer time reinforces pursuing the opportunity. And so, both in your devotional time of reading and messages you're hearing or verses people share with you, uh, it just seems like, man, that makes me think again about this possibility that's before me. Your prayer time the same way. You're pouring it out. Lord, uh, will you, is this you trying to get me to move on this and make changes to make this happen? Um, as you take steps of obedience, you have God's peace when obstacles emerge. And so it's amazing how many times I, I felt like God was providing an open door for me and, and, and I commit to exploring that and going forward with it and then all hell seems to break loose. And, and you could interpret those as, oh, well, God's closing the door. Well, no, if, if he's already led you and you, you really feel like you're supposed to do it, well, there's going to be opposition. Satan's going to throw the kitchen sink at it. And that's where God's peace will have you know you're doing the right thing, even though all of a sudden it's a little tougher to obey in that area. And your most spiritual advisors don't see any serious red flags you are missing. We are not to live the Christian life in isolation. God gives us good, strong Christian friends for a reason, and we should talk with them and pray with them and let them speak truth into us about situations before we pursue uh, radical changes in our lives. Uh, but make sure they're serious spiritual advisors because many people will act selfishly and tell you, no, I don't want you to go. I don't want you to do that uh, because I need you here, uh, you know, etc. The Apostle Paul spoke often of open doors. He said, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me. And it's interesting, right around that same place, he talks about the opposition he's currently facing. So he says, I'll stay and keep on going with the Lord. We earlier read about him wanting to go to Asia, Acts 16:6, 6, but the Spirit forbade it. Now Jesus tells the church in Philadelphia to go to the rest of Asia. So what Paul wasn't able to do, he helped reinforce churches that later were called to do a whole lot of, and he himself got to do some of it as well. Doors open and they close. I can't help but think of my good friend Keith Jones. 
Keith runs the ministry equipping the saints up in uh, Weir's Cave, Virginia, near Harrisonburg, just south of Harrisonburg. When he was a Moody Bible student, um, Moody Bible College student institute, he um, wanted to go into missions aviation. He wanted to be a flyer of planes to help missions with work and things like that. But one of the eye things or something like that, he, he wasn't able to pass the medical to do that. So he had the heart's desire to do it, but circumstances closed the door. But even as that door closed, as he talked to people at Moody and missions agencies would come in, he had the opportunity to go to, I believe it was Columbia, South America, and be a missionary there, and had seven or eight great years there. One of the things he did was master Spanish during those years. He and his wife, Jan, mastered Spanish. Well, then there was some health difficulties in the family, and as much as he thought he was going to spend the rest of his life in Columbia, they had to come back to the States for medical care, and so a door got closed again. He was a pastor for a while, and it went well. He had a good church, but it wasn't exactly where he thought he should be, and so he kept praying, God, will you open doors, get me back into mission somehow? And an opportunity worked up for him to work with Christian Aid Mission out of Charlottesville. They identify native populations around the world and help support them as they do the work of the gospel. But he also had a, he couldn't help but remember all the uh, difficulties that missionary friends on the field faced. And so uh, he, he said, you know, they don't have uh, some of the basic things we take for granted in ministry here in the state. So he began filling Christian Aid's basement with things to send missionaries, <laughs> Bibles and uh, copiers and <laughs> computers and things like that. And the Christian Aid president called him in and said, look, Keith, we love you, but you've got a different ministry. You know, churches plant churches. Let us help plant you a new ministry that will equip the saints like you want to do. He called it Equipping the Saints. It's been about 25 years later now. They send things to places all over the world, and you can get supplies for ministries in America too. And Keith's become a genius at networking. You know one of the great things he has is this whole opening and closing of doors has happened in his lifetime? Keith Jones in Equipping the Saints in Weir's Cave has a room, uh, it's a rather large room, filled with Hispanic Christian resources. And I asked him one time, I said, Keith, how far would you have to drive to get to that good a Hispanic Christian bookstore? And he said, you would have to go to uh, New York or Miami. And it's right there in Weir's Cave, Virginia. And they equip Christians all throughout South America. And he's able to talk to pastors when they come in in Spanish because of the Colombian years. See, God brings it all back in one way or another. Even the things you think, oh, why in the world did God have me do that for three years or four years or five years? He brings it back. He brings it back and uses it as part of this process of closing and opening doors. But some of those doors are limited time offers and you have to respond quickly. Another friend of the ministry here, we're helping him this year, is Joe Fleming, uh, the training to send guy. And Joe was two years away from full retirement as a state trooper. And he wanted to read David Platt's book, Radical. And I told him, I said, Brandon, I need to warn, uh, Brandon, you're Brandon. Let's go, Brandon. Um, not Brandon, it was uh, Joe. I said, Joe, listen. Joe, if you read that book, I need to warn you, God's gonna change your life. And uh, so he did, he read it. And he couldn't get over the needs of the missions around the world and lost people, and he wanted to be part of it. He'd already been on several mission trips as a church member, and he just couldn't get over this beating on his heart like this, right? And so he actually did not take the two more years and wait. He went ahead and went. First with the IMB in India, then West Africa, now this independent ministry in West Africa doing the same things. And he came to me one time and he said, you're right, I shouldn't have read the book. <laughs> He's glad he did. He's glad he did, but that kind of thing. A child in my previous church heard me talking about open doors and prayed that a door would open to share the gospel with her granddaddy, and it did. Within that holiday season, she was able to share, tell her granddaddy how much she loved Jesus and wished he would turn from his sin and turn to Jesus. And God will open a door for you, you like that this year if he puts it on your heart to share. Uh, around the Thanksgiving table or at Christmas time. In our church, we've seen God open the door for the Good News Club to go into Kentucky Elementary School. Right now, it's closed, but we pray God will open it back up again. He opens and closes doors. Well, what doors are open to you? And are you going through the door, or is the Lord already closing that door because of your disobedience? Turn to Esther chapter 4. I think about Mordecai. 
talking to Esther. Esther was the queen, and it gave her certain privileges, but the way kings and queens worked in those days, at least in Persia, was that if you went in unannounced, he could go ahead and have you killed and just slide a new queen into the role, right? And so she was a little bit wary of going in and using that position to ask him of things, but he adored her. She'd earned the right to speak, and many of you have earned the right to speak with your kids and your grandkids, uh, and so you have the right to share. God's given that to you. But she was waffling, and Mordecai, her uncle, her guardian, said to her, verse 13, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. Uh, there was a decree that all the Jews were to be persecuted and killed. And he said, don't think you'll escape because you're in the palace and we're out here in the neighborhoods. Um, if they come for the Jews, they'll come for all of us. Verse 14, for if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Don't you love that? Hear me clearly, what God wants to do on planet earth will not be thwarted by men. He will have the final word in your life and in everyone's life and in this world. So if he gives us an opportunity to join him in what he's doing and we say no, we're the ones that are gonna miss the blessing. He'll make it happen some other way. We're the ones that will miss that reward and the peace we could have had by living that kind of life now of obedience and direction. I love everything about those two verses, but I also then immediately think to you today, and I don't want you to miss it. Well, look at verse nine. Open doors do not mean there won't be opposition. Verse nine, he says, now indeed, I'm gonna make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, not worship them, but to worship God before them and to know that I have loved you. In other words, you were right and they were wrong uh, about matters of theology and life and practice and all those different things. Folks, when the gospel was first spreading, the church had many people in its midst who were from a Jewish background and they had come to believe that Jesus was their Messiah and God. And this made some of the other ones furious, those who did not acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah. And as Jews who acknowledged Jesus began meeting with Gentiles and churches, some from the synagogues persecuted them. And Paul had done that before his conversion. So he's talking about a matter of historical reality. And whenever I talk about things, 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 I, these things, I like to quickly say that our situation is different in the year 2021 in that we look around the world and we see our Jewish friends persecuted wrongly and many times it's done by the, the, uh, replacement theology background Christians who think the church has replaced Israel. It has not. God's working through the church now. He's gonna keep all his promises to Israel in the times to come. So we need to be very careful that we don't say, well, see there, that's why it's okay to do and say some of the stupid things Martin Luther and others said. And uh, we want to be very careful about that. But within this historical reality, we realize that throughout time, those who have turned to Jesus have been persecuted by lots of others, uh, by communistic dictators and by regimes and kings and emperors, the Roman Empire. Paul was writing this from Patmos because it was happening to him in that moment. And many of the ones he were writing to were experiencing some level of political persecution for their faith. It's happening a lot in China right now. It's happening in other areas around the world too. And uh, it is, he, he, he wants us to be faithful but he says something here in the midst of this opposition that we're going to face that's really staggering to hear, but I, I think it's very clear that he's saying, uh, let me say it like this, in every generation there are those who bitterly oppose the gospel and lash out against believers, but here we are told that one day, they will one day acknowledge that Jesus is real and loves his disciples. Did you catch the full implications of that? Folks, I take the Bible literally, I take it at its plain meaning. God says it, that settles it. Oh, I believe it too. It's not God says it, I believe it, that settles it. God said it, that settles it, I believe it. According to these verses, I believe foul-mouthed atheists will one day bow before believers and apologize for blaspheming God and mocking believers. I believe those who killed Christians and made them martyrs will one day have to acknowledge that their actions were evil 
and God is just to sentence them to hell as rebels against heaven. I believe that family member that has given you hell on earth will bow before you one day and admit they were wrong and you were right and you were right to love Jesus. Our hope is that they get saved and also love Jesus. Our heart's desire is for everybody to come to know what we've known. As Keith Green sang, it's only that I care. I just really, really, really want to see you there, mom, dad. I just really want to see you there. But if they don't bow one day before us and realize if they don't repent, one day they're going to bow even before us and admit they were wrong about Jesus and about their posture toward us. You say, Danny, when will, you hap- when will that happen? We're not told. I think it'll happen at the great white throne judgment. I think we're all going to be there. Only the, those who never turn to Christ will experience a punitive judgment that day. But everything else hanging out there in the history of the world will be dealt with that day. Hitler will say, I was wrong to all that he persecuted and killed. And everyone else will have to give an account like that too. That's my guess is it happens at the great white throne judgment. It's certainly here. It says it happens. It's going to happen. I'm going to make it happen one day. I think it's great white throne stuff. Verses 10 and 11, the great open door coming for all the redeemed. Look at again at verses 10 and 11. He says to Christians, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. It says here that true believers are going to be kept from the coming hour of trial. Know how specific it is. Not kept from the trial or preserved within it like Israel was within Egypt. I'm going to keep you from the very hour of it. You're not even going to be around when that hour happens. What's the hour of trial? In the context, I think it can only mean the tribulation spoken of in Revelation chapter 6 to 19. So let me briefly tell you the three purposes of the tribulation according to the Bible. In all my study, this is what it comes down to. Three purposes of the tribulation. First, it's the beginning of God's judgment on the satanic world system. If you look at Psalm 2, you get an idea what's going to happen during the time of the tribulation. So write Psalm 2 next to that. People shake their fist at God and against his Messiah, and they want to do life on earth without God. Guess what? During the tribulation, God's going to let them. I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to sustain you with the church's presence during this time. So during this time, uh, you're going to be seduced by the lies of that one world leader that you say you want, the Antichrist who's going to emerge when the tribulation starts. Um, But guess what? Uh, Right now, I keep meteors from hitting you and stuff like that. I'm not going to do that during the time of the tribulation. You're going to have to figure that out on your own, how to stop meteors from hitting earth during that time. And guess what? I'm going to tell you in advance, you're not going to get to stop all those things from hitting earth. Secondly, the revival of spiritual Israel in fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises to ready Israel for Christ's thousand-year reign. It will be focused on Jesus, and there will be a mass turning to Christ during that time. The third is an evangelistic harvest as the lost of the world get their last chances to turn to Jesus. Um, Now listen, I live to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. So if we have to go through the time of tribulation, I'll be okay with that. And if I get killed sharing the faith during that time, then I'll get good to go right to heaven. The scripture makes that clear. But I believe we have here in verse 10 a specific promise that the rapture of the church spoken of in John 14 and 1 Thessalonians 4, the catching up of the saints to the presence of the Lord will happen before that time. One of the reasons I believe that is the word church does not occur in Revelation chapter 6 to 19. Earth dwellers, here it says, to test those who dwell on the earth. It's just one word in the Greek, earth dwellers. Earth dwellers occurs throughout the tribulation and refers to those who need to repent and turn to Christ. Earth dwellers appears here and in all the verses that I've given you there in your notes. The church is made up of heaven dwellers and later new earth dwellers. The earth dwellers that don't know Christ will enter that time and have to quickly make the decision of whether to turn to Christ or not. And I believe this is the word for us as we await the rapture. Verse 11, I am coming quickly, hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. And so even though there are events to consider in the book of Revelation, I'll tell you what, I'm not on the planning committee. I'm on the welcoming committee. Even so, come Lord Jesus, living in the reality that he could come back at any time for his church and start the process of fulfilling those things. 
Throughout the New Testament, there's eager expectation of believers that Jesus could come for us at any time. That he will open the door to heaven and meet us in the air and bring us to himself. In chapter 4, verse 1, look what it says. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And it's like Christ said, come on up here. Come on up here. So less than 20 verses away from um, what is told there in verse 10. There's an open door in heaven. Come up here. And then the next things are considered. Well, verse 12, coming down the home stretch. Overcomers will get two more things in the new Jerusalem. Uh, look at verse 12. It says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. So what do overcomers get? First, they get the kind of security that they didn't have in Philadelphia. They were scattered even outside the city, and inside the city they were afraid of another earthquake making buildings fall, but they weren't going to have that kind of insecurity in the future. Some of you live in insecurity about uh, paying your rent or your mortgage or what the next year holds and those things. Life has full of its insecurities. Will this child do right? Will that child do right? Will my parents do right? Will whoever you do right? And most of the biggest struggle we have is with the person we see in the mirror. You know, well, I do right. <laughs> you know? And many times we don't. But um, the new Jerusalem will be filled with security, not insecurity. And we'll be there together and we'll be secure in such a powerful way. It won't fall down like their city had. It will come down perfect from God. And we'll see that as we get into the Re book of Revelation later on. But second, they will get the recognition they didn't have in Philadelphia. It says here, Philadelphia, they, would er they will erect, the well, let me tell you this. In Philadelphia, they would erect pillars with inscriptions to great citizens. So as you came into town, you'd see their sports stars. Uh, you, you've been in places and seen big billboards, right? And here's their big music star. Here's their big uh, actor star. Here's their big this. Here's their big that. And you look at those pillars and, oh, yeah, I remember they were in that movie. I remember when they won that championship and all those different things. Cities celebrate their big wigs, right, and their historical things. He's saying that about you and I here, that in the New Jerusalem, we're going to get pillars like that, right? I think about the U.S. Capitol. Each state has two pillars right, uh, for its citizens there. I think uh, Virginia's about to change one of theirs over. Um, but there for Nebraska, there, of the two that are there for Nebraska, one of them is William Jennings Bryan. You know, I went to William Jennings Bryan College, and he did so many neat things for the Lord and for the faith back in his day, but he's represented there. Here we're told that in the New Jerusalem, there will be some kind of hall of pillars and the exploits of you and I. And all overcomers. Here's what God's saying. When you overcome by your faith and make the most of open doors that I put before you, one day in the New Jerusalem, people will be reading about you. So you'll be able to go up and see the Gary Reynolds pillar, you know, there. And it'll tell the story about how he too was inching toward retirement, getting pretty close. And he said, no, no, I need to follow this call that the Lord's given me now. And he moved that through that open door that God gave at that time. It'll, it'll tell about some of the trips he's been on with some of you and some of the things that happened as the gospel was shared and buildings were built for Christians around the world, Brazil, Kenya, so many other places. And, and there'll be some times where maybe the vehicle was broken down and there was possible danger in one of those African countries or something like that. And you'll be able to push the button and you'll be, it'll, it'll be able to tell you who all back at the tabernacle was praying in the middle of the night during that time and how God was taking the prayers and answering them and keeping Gary and his team safe while that was happening. You say, Danny, could there really be such a thing? Well, I hope so. I th it definitely says there will be some kind of way of celebrating what you've done for Christ and thinking about how God would use all the technology that he knows even more about than we ever did. Don't you ever believe the lie that progress in technology means that the faith is outdated. They'd have had the internet in the days of Noah if they'd followed the Lord. But our minds have been so clouded through sin, we take it a bad direction, and God has to bring our towers of Babel down over and over again. See, even the technology couldn't keep up with me here. Don't miss your full reward, folks. Walk through those open doors. Well, I told you about the courageous preacher Thomas Cartwright 
who preached to the president that if the president didn't turn from his sin, he would go to hell. After the sermon, uh, President Jackson came right up to Cartwright, strode right up to where he was, where the preacher was, and he said, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. By the way, that was in the 1820s after President Jackson retired from the presidency and went back to his beloved Tennessee. In the year 1838, he was saved in a Presbyterian revival meeting and spent the last several years of his life, he had five years left, reading his Bible, studying it, and we're told that the day that he died, he gathered all his family around and actually the doctor pronounced him dead, put him in the chair, and he came back, his eyes came back open and just scared him all to death. They put him in the bed and all the family was gathered around him. And for the next 30 minutes, he told them everything he knew about the faith and encouraging them too to have peace with God through Jesus Christ and to finish their own life's journey well. And probably his only regret was that he hadn't really been saved years earlier because, you know, his record was very interesting as president and some of the things he probably wished he hadn't done and that sort of thing. I'm calling you out this morning. What open doors does the Lord have for you to walk through? And as he makes those clear to you, say yes. Talk about them rather than running in the other direction. But if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, you do not have peace with God through Jesus Christ, let me tell you the first door you need to walk through, the door of salvation. In John 10, 9, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Right now, you're on the lost side of the door. You're still in your sin. But he says, I am the door. And it doesn't mean he's physically a door. It means spiritually that if you come to God through him and he, you, you, you acknowledge that he's the only reason God should let you in heaven is your faith in Jesus. He says, if you enter through me, you will be saved. Will you bow your heads? Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.